0: Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash mooney. Yes, another busy show ahead of us tonight in the company of our panel, Dr Richard Collins at his home in Malahide, in any Lanas in Terranure, we'll speak to Terry Flanagan shortly. And Niall Hatch is at his home in Greystones. And it's with you I want to start. Now I want to take you back to July when I asked you all about avian flu. <laughs>
1: Yes, um, it really is becoming a very serious problem for lots of seabirds. We spoke about it on the programme last week about how British Ireland staff have been very carefully monitoring seabird colonies in the Republic of Ireland to see if they if they can detect this and see, because we've seen problems elsewhere in, in Europe with this, uh, with, with this disease. Uh, at the time I'm speaking to you right now, no cases have been detected in the Republic of Ireland but we think unfortunately it's only a matter of time because there are cases in Northern Ireland, seabirds move around quite a lot and we do know that uh, seabird populations in Great Britain have been absolutely decimated by this in recent Weeks it's been very, very sad uh, to see. One colony, particularly, that we're very concerned about, uh, would be Rockabille Island um, off the coast of Skerries in North County Dublin. <laughs>
0: Niall, that was two months ago and that's something we do regularly on this programme. We're like a lighthouse, we tell mariners to stay off the rocks and we warn people in advance of something happening. Unfortunately, you predicted it would come to Ireland and it is here. If you've been listening to your radio stations or perusing your local newspapers, you'd have seen perhaps images but certainly heard people talk about this avian influenza that is now in Ireland. Niall
1: very important to do so yes indeed so uh, unfortunately since we recorded that avian flu has been recorded in the Republic of Ireland as we we would have expected to be honest it was pretty much inevitable that it would arrive here Uh, in Birdwatch Ireland particularly we we were concerned for the Rockabill Island as we said there particularly Mm -hmm. the Rosia Tern population the largest Rosia Tern colony in all of Europe now I'm pleased to say that those birds themselves managed to leave the island before any disease seems to have hit so although they may still be affected by it out at sea at least they're not in that large concentration and a lot of our seabirds have left. However, uh, sadly, in the last few days, we in Birdwatcherland have received several hundred reports at this point of seabirds either sick or dying or turning up in strange locations. Uh, mainly gannets, actually, they seem to be the species that's most affected. And it seems that avian flu is almost certainly the culprit uh, in in most, if not all, of those cases. At the moment, we're urging people to follow the uh, advice of the Department of Agriculture, uh, which is if you see a dead or sick or injured seabird, uh, to not to touch it, to leave it, to leave it. Alone, and uh, not to take it home with you to try care for it, not to bring it to a rehabilitation centre that they won't accept it anyway because the risk of cross contamination by the disease is so high. It seems really horrible and um, to have to do that and to advise people to leave wildlife just to, to, to die as it is, but that's the, the safest thing, unfortunately, and that's the Department of Agriculture's guidelines at the moment. Uh, we're also asking people please to report uh, any birds that they do find uh, dead or dying or in strange circumstances to to the Department of Agriculture. They have a special uh, website set up for this for people to record their their sightings uh, we'll make sure it's up on, on the Mooney Goes Wild website so people can link to it directly there and uh, one thing just to say we had quite a lot of feedback in the last few days people who are seeing gannets mainly uh, yes. being big sick and what's happening there is when you go to that Department of Agriculture website there's no drop down menu to actually in, in the menu to select the gannets themselves a lot of people are confused by this so uh, what we're advising people to do is when they ask you what kind of bird it is uh, like what species group select don't know from the drop down menu and then type in gannet um, um, so it seems kind of convoluted and maybe the department could do something to, to fix that. That would be very helpful. But for the moment, it's best to put them in uh, to put it in that way.
0: Well, I was around the Skellig Ring for the last few days, Niall, filming for another Back from the Brink documentary we're making with our partners in the EBU. And I came across two dead gannets on Ba Fionn. It was sad to see the dead birds there. I took some photographs. I wasn't imagining it. You can see them on the website if you want to. And I also spoke to some people in the area who would have an instinct for this kind of thing to see if they had heard of or witnessed any sick or dead birds themselves. So let's start with Eamon Love. I met Eamon in Port McGee. He's one of the guides on the Skelligs.
2: I am Eamon Love. I'm one of the guides on the Skelligs. And uh, I... We look after the island from going out today for 15 days on six days off for most of the season there's usually three guides on at a time so there's myself bob claire catherine and maggie the five guides on the island so And when out. is
0: the busiest time of year for you
2: it's all year basically now especially after star wars it's it's from early may until the first week in october we're, we're looking after the island basically right. how many birds are out there at the moment i don't mean individual but are there many it was about a mask uh, already. Most of the oaks are gone. If you're out there today, you see a lot of fulmars. Of course, the three species of, of, of seagull. Definitely, there's a marked drop in the numbers at this time, time of the year. But the gannets are still there. But have you noticed any sick birds on the land or in the water? Not so many, to be honest. I, again, I, not so many. I know I've heard reports of them, but I haven't seen that many, to be honest. I, there's something going on. Maybe the bird flu is affecting some of the birds. But again, I'm not the scientist. No, but um, you're there
0: on the ground, so you're an eyewitness. Uh, Yeah. And you're there every day when you're there.
2: Yeah, but again, I haven't seen many more than normal. You know, birds die all the time, so I don't know.
0: That was Eamon Love, one of the guides on the Skellig, so he said he hasn't seen too many, nothing more than usual in his opinion. The other person I spoke with was Lucy Hunt, who's a marine biologist and founder of Sea Synergy, based in Waterville. Lucy had a very different story to tell. Now, the audio is very bad, I have to say. I apologise, I recorded it on my mobile phone. I didn't appreciate just how blustery it was. But I think you will get the gist of what Lucy is saying.
2: Yeah, so I suppose more and
0: more people are reporting dead birds um, around the coastline now and um we've been seeing that we put out a post on facebook just to say you know this is happening in the area so you see people coming back in the comments saying yeah we've seen it here we've seen it there so um i guess it's yeah it's it's Worrying for sure, and I think the next month ahead we'll probably see um, a bit more of it, but we don't know what's going to happen from that. Hopefully, the council will put up some notices for people walking their dogs and things like that to let people know that you know not to go near these dead birds. Once again, I apologize for the quality of that audio, but thank you, Lucy Hunt and your colleague Anna. Now, Niall, as you could hear there, Lucy has quite a few reports of dead birds in the area. That certainly tallies with Birdwatch Ireland's
1: experience over the last week or so. We've had uh, at least a couple of hundred reports of dead gannets, especially on the east coast. Uh, so we're seeing along the Irish Sea coast, particularly that happening. And that is probably a spillover from what's happening in, um, in colonies on the, the British side of the Irish Sea, which were hit earlier than ours. So it is certainly a concern, and we would urge people who do find these birds to report them to the department. And just to reiterate to people, please do not touch these birds. I know that the, the desire to be there to try and help them, people have this instinct to want to help them, But it's very important that people follow the advice from the department and and just leave them alone, unfortunately.
0: Okay, Niall, thank you very much indeed for that update. You can visit the website to get more details, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. This wonderful piece of music is especially for Terry Flanagan. If you've been listening to our roving reporter, stroke biologist for the past few weeks, you'll know that we gave him a signature tune. We first gave him the Pink Panther theme, but we felt it was a bit dull, so we opted for this instead. It's Casino Royale, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass Band from 1967. Fantastic. I love it, but does he love it? Terry Flanagan.
3: Do you like it, Terry? Do you like it? Terry, <laughs> you're so so good to me. Do you know that? I'll never be able to thank you enough. Well, you can start. Anyway, Terry, you're not in studio. You're not even at your home in Dublin fifteen. Where exactly are you tonight? I'm not in the county of Dublin. No, you're dead right. I'm not even in the province of Leinster. I'm in Connacht. Mm -hmm. I'm in County Galway. And I'm with John Lusby. Now, as you know, we're doing a special programme on barn owls, which is going out next month. And John is the Raptor Conservation Officer with Birdwatch Ireland. And he's taking me down here to show me barn owls tonight. There's a nest of them very, very close to where we are. John, thanks for having me. You're very welcome, Terry. Delighted
4: you made the journey. Now, you're not going to tell us exactly where we are, isn't that right? That's right, yeah. We always keep the, the nest site locations confidential, just, just for their own safety. But we're, we're in the general area, northeast Galway, so... OK. Yeah. And where we are is a good spot for barn owls, yeah? It is, and in fact, they're doing quite well here. I never thought I'd say it, but it's fantastic, positive conservation success story. We're actually noticing an increase in numbers in this area and in other parts of the country which is fantastic something that I never never thought I'd be in a position to say so really really good to to see the signs of initial population recovery for Barnells
3: Because you started working on Barnells about I think it was 2005 or so and the numbers then were were tiny I think it was something like 30 or 40 pairs in the whole country
4: That's right very very different story back then and you know we've really seen the you know changes over time and you know we're, we're learning the reasons for those changes But uh, it was a very, very different story back then. Actually, interesting enough, the site that we will be visiting shortly is a nest that has been active since back then. But as you say, there was very few nest sites that we knew of back if we go back as uh, as far back as 2005. Much different story now, much healthier population and going in the right direction, which is is fantastic.
3: Now, going in the right direction, as you say, but it's taken a lot of work from people like you and many, many others.
4: It has, yeah. A lot of people around the country have really, you know, invested time and effort and energy into helping barn owls. Um, through a range of different measures, providing nest boxes, you know, habitat improvement. And it's good to see that hard work paying off. But in general, you know, because of the fact the population has recovered, we should really make sure that that remains the case. And we don't want to be having this conversation 10 years from now and talking about the decline again. So while the numbers are good, it's really important to make sure that remains the case and that the, the numbers continue to build. Because I would say, even though the population has slowly increased, it's still not at the levels that it would have been about 50, 60 years ago. And it would be great, you know, to, to continue, that the, the population continues to restore to those levels.
3: What's the one thing that the Ordinary Joe Soap and the Public can do that would help
4: barn owls? D- can you give me two main things? Okay, so the two main things, habitat uh, to to leave wild areas that that helps barn owls it helps other um, their prey which which barn owls depend on small mammals as well as a wide range of other species so to leave space for nature that's absolutely essential and it will have huge benefits for not only barn owls but 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 wildlife in general and the other thing is rat poisons to if they can stop using rat poisons use other means of controlling rodents because that's a, it's a huge issue in Ireland that uh, we know that many many species of wildlife are exposed to to, to rodenticides or rat poisons and that and that affects them, and they can be, they're can present in the food chain. So they were, if I was to give two, that there's, there's many more, but they would be the two most important, and the ones that, if you are take those measures, would bring the greatest benefits.
0: Well, it's fantastic news that the owls are making a recovery of sorts. But that's for a documentary, Terry, which will be broadcast as part of RT Radio 1's Nature Nights towards the end of October. We'll tell you more about that as the week's progress. But tonight, it's all about Wildflower
3: Meadows, Terry, your report, that is. <laughs> Yes, it is. Derek, I, recently I was down in County Waterford and the National Biodiversity Data Centre. it uh, was about three weeks ago or so, and I went down to talk to Dr Una Fitzpatrick. She's the senior ecologist there. Now, as you know, we are constantly going on about biodiversity on the programme and how important it is. It's so important to our insects and the insects are so important then to the food chains. Well, anyway, I went down to have a look at their meadow because meadows are incredible things. And I think Nowadays, more and more people want to do something positive in their own gardens to help wildlife. And there's nothing better to do than create a meadow. So that's what led me to travel down to County Waterford. And Una explained to me how easy it is to create a meadow and also to highlight the fact that individuals can make a difference for wildlife. I'll bring you over here, Terry, to our wild meadow. Oh, it's absolutely lovely here. And we're just on top of the, I think that's the N25, is that right?
5: Yeah, that's right. So this is outside the National Biodiversity
3: Data Centre in Waterford. And what I'm looking at here are a mass of wildflowers. Some people might call them weeds. I'm not going to call them weeds. I see some beautiful knapweed here, but the one thing I do notice is the huge number of insects that are present.
5: Yes, yeah, so we've been establishing this meadow for about eight or nine years. Mm-hmm. So it used to be uh, farmland, so we brought it back out of farmland and established it as a long flowering meadow.
3: Um, now, and what's the, a long-flowering meadow?
5: Yeah, so I, I will just say that you can have two types of meadows. One is short-flowering, and, and the other is long-flowering. In both cases, you're just reducing the frequency of mowing. So with a short-flowering meadow, instead of mowing every couple of weeks, you might mow every six weeks. And that allows things like dandelion, clovers, you know, self-heal, to pop up and provide food for, for insects and other biodiversity. The other option, then, is a long-flowering meadow. And that's where you just cut once a year in September and remove the cuttings.
3: Nowadays, a lot of people are trying to get away from the short cut grass to creating a meadow. So what a meadow is, is really just a lawn that hasn't been cut.
5: Yeah, exactly. And what you're doing is replicating what would have happened in an old hay meadow. Mm -hmm. So it's really that so you're just reducing the cut and, and the long flowering meadow the best way to do it is as I say is
3: just cut once a year in September and there's two reasons why people do this I presume number one for themselves so they can look out at the beautiful coloured flowers and the variety of flowers that you get in the meadow you get the oxide the napweed the lovely purple napweed you've got the poppies the red poppies you've got the ragged robins the blue so you've got the whole spectrum of it. but it's also much more important for the insects
5: Exactly. It's an absolutely gorgeous habitat for us, you know, and I can't stress how lovely it is. And you can do this in any area. It can be in the smallest garden, you know, to the biggest field, to the longest roadside verge. It's a gorgeous habitat for humans. As you just described, it's teeming with life. And that is the point. It is so rich in biodiversity. It's such an important habitat for wildlife and one that has really been decimated in recent decades, but so easy to bring back. You know, that the cost is very little. It's just you have to manage it properly. You have to be patient and you have to allow it to come back. There's amazing, you just described them, there's amazing plants in the soil seed mm. bank that try to grow every year and get chopped off by long And I, know, never, I never even mentioned the orchids. Exactly, and that's what happens. You know, you start, the, the thing about a long-flower is you do have to be patient. Mm. Um, but ultimately, that's, that's what you get. You see orchids starting to come back, you know, after five, six, seven years. And just stunning to see these little plants getting a chance to come
3: back and, and support all the other insects that need them. Now, there are two ways really about creating a meadow like this. Number one, I presume, is take everything out, cut everything, remove the soil, and start from scratch by planting wildflower seeds. Or the other is just not to mow at all. I would say there's only one way to do it, and that's
5: one good way to do it, and that's not to mow at all. And really? Yeah, absolutely. You know that is the best most cost-effective way to help pollinators and other biodiversity is just to allow these meadows to naturally regenerate. There's three things you have to be aware of one is you have to cut in September and you have to remove the cuttings that's really important and what that does is allows the soil fertility to drop because when the soil fertility is really high you get the fast growing things like grasses and docks and ragwort they'll take over so you have to take the cuttings away allow the soil fertility to drop which gives the wildflowers a chance to come in over time second thing is it does still require management so you need to go through your meadow you know a few times each year and take away those really large fast growing plants things like dock, things like hogweed things like ragwort maybe some of the thistles you need to remove those and the third thing is you just have to be patient
2: mm. it'll
5: start out grassy but it will get better year on year if you keep managing it
3: I know a lot of people might be inclined to say, oh, would it be okay if I just add some seed? I like the red poppies, for instance.
5: The thing I would say is if you want to add some seed, what you should do is collect that seed from another natural meadow in your local area and use that. Um, I would be really, or I would caution against going off and buying a packet of wildflower seed. That is something entirely different. That's a style of gardening. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not bringing back this native Irish habitat um, when you buy a packet of wildflower seed, it's a mix of flowers, you know, to be honest, put together for humans to look really beautiful and colourful. It bears no resemblance to what you'd find in a native meadow like the one we're looking at now. So that's fine, but it's a style of gardening.
3: The best thing to do is to don't mow, let it grow. Looking at this meadow that's here now, looking at the, there are there must be a hundred bumblebees I can see here. I don't know the names of them all, but I know the, the white-tailed bumblebee and yeah. a few and, they're just going about their business here. Yeah. What type of plants do they want? That's a really important point. They want the
5: really simple things. So the big showy things that we like are not what they want. So they want dandelions in early spring. They want vetches. They want selfheal. They want birds with truffle. And at this time of year, they want the knapweed. Mm. So these are all really simple plants that will come back anywhere when you just don't know let it grow. And, and you're right, I can see four different bumblebee species just in that one napweed beside us here. Yeah. And the thing about napweeds is chalk a block with nectar. Yeah. But it has a phenomenal amount of nectar compared to other wildflowers.
3: Now, a lot of people may not know the difference between a napweed and a thistle because looking at them, they look very, very similar. Really, the only difference between them to the layman is a sting. So when people might see this beautiful flower, they might be inclined to say, oh, pull that out because it's a stinger.
5: Well, do you know, the thing to do is go along and have a look in August because mm. knapweed is flowering now and you can see it's got that beautiful purple coloured flower. The difference between knapweed and a thistle is that knapweed will stay where it is whereas a thistle at this time of year has really gone to seed and is going to spread quite a bit. Knapweed stays where it is. It might expand a little each year, but it's not going to you know, run riot and take over.
3: For someone starting now at this time of the year, what would you advise if they wanted to create a wildflower meadow in their garden?
5: I'll say firstly that that is the best action that you can take for biodiversity in your garden. So at this time of year, it's a little bit difficult. The best thing to do is to decide what part of your garden you're going to do this in next year. So you might want to start slowly. You know, you can just reduce mow and maybe you mow every couple of weeks. You know, you could start saying, well, okay, I'm going to just reduce that to once a month or once every six weeks. You know, we have a few campaigns, Let Dandelions Be in April and then No Mow May. That's a really good introduction to this because it shows you how important this grassland habitat can be and how easy it is to bring it back in gardens you can then take it up a step further and identify you know a small or a large area of your garden where you might want to have these long flowering meadows where you just cut once a year in September we do this in our garden just along a strip on the side and so it's we let it grow right throughout the year cut in September and lift the cuttings, and it is honestly just amazing to see it it's buzzing all the time and each year different little plants pop up so some year you get you know a profusion of speedwells all the years there's loads of oxide easy you know maybe it's self-heal there's nap weed there at the minute and i have yet to go past it but there are insects on it Mm. which shows how valuable it is
3: and at no cost people have been taking more of an interest in wildflower gardening now is it having an effect on our insects it's definitely having
5: a positive impact there's a biodiversity crisis we need to return the habitats that they need for a lot of us it's hard to return habitats like sand dunes or bogs but there are two that we can one is hedgerows particularly on farmland and the second are these meadows we can all return pockets of these meadows and the collective impact of doing that is absolutely huge you know so you can see the benefit to insects and to other biodiversity there's some research in the uk by plant life And they show that in a typical meadow, you get about 1,400 different invertebrates supported by that meadow. That is huge, you know, both above and below ground. So really, it's impossible to stress what an important biodiversity habitat they are.
3: Really, we do have to look after our insects. There's no getting away from that.
5: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're seeing catastrophic declines. You know, a third of our bees are threatened with extinction. There's a crisis. But at the same time, you know, we can change it. And through the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan, we've been trying to do that, and people really have got behind it and are making the changes that are necessary to protect these insects into the future. Because, you know, that we're
3: so dependent on them, whether we, whether we fully realise it or not. Because often we think... As individuals, we can't make a difference. It's really up to governments and NGOs and the likes, but we can make a difference.
5: We 100% can make a difference, and I think the All-Ireland Pollinator Plan has shown that there are people across all sectors who are taking action. And when you put those small actions together, the collective impact is huge, and we're seeing that. You know, so you can. It can be hard to feel empowered to know what to do in a crisis, you know, like climate or biodiversity. But you really, really can help. You can help in your garden. You can help in your farm. You can help in your tidy script. And I would say that tidy scripts have been really amazing at embracing this and changing the way local areas are managed for the better.
3: So wildflower meadow gardening and the no-mow system, that's the way forward?
5: That is 100% the way forward. And we always say patience over packets. Just don't mow. See what comes up give biodiversity a chance to return. They couldn't leave a better legacy.
0: I couldn't agree more. More details, as always, on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, do you know the name Shane LaHan? Come on now, think. Do you know it? Do you know who I'm talking about? Well, if you were watching the summer show on RTE1 television some weeks ago presented by Nuala Carey and myself you would have seen Shane Lehan with us on the Pilgrim Paths. He's a folklorist. Shane is also Course Director of Cultural and Heritage Studies in CSN, College of Further Education Cork. He has lectured in Archaeology, Folklore, History and the Arts for over 30 years. He's also a part-time lecturer in the Department of Folklore and Ethnology in University College Cork. He's also got a very keen interest in the Irish hare of which he spoke more,
6: to Richard Collins. Hello Shane, you have written a fascinating paper entitled The Coyuck and the Cosmic Hare, in which you examine folk beliefs about hares and their alleged relationship to hags. Shane, could you summarise this story for us?
7: Yeah, I I will, of course. And and listen, I'm delighted to be talking about hares because I think we all have a a wonderful fascination with them. like little rabbits, you know, they're furry, they're cuddly. We have a, a very strong affinity with them. But strangely, in Irish tradition, they were much reviled and people hunted them and killed them. And that's a kind of a complexity that's always bothered me. Why would you take something so pleasant in this world and attribute negativity to it? So it's it's very interesting that the hare appears in Irish folklore at two points in the calendar. One in particular is at the end of harvest around Michaelmas and during the last sheaf of the harvest is called the hare or putting out the hare. And the other time it appears in the Irish folk tradition is on the 1st of May um, when we have the May morning hare. And the May morning hare comes uh, usually to to steal somebody's butter or somebody's butter profit. Um, and just to, to make the point, first of all, the, the hare appears in Irish folklore at these two pinnacles when we abstract, from nature or from farming, if you like, from agriculture, and we abstract the cereal crop and we take as well the milk crop as it were. So there, there is this great idea that the hare is representative of something, it's symbolic of something and it is symbolic in many ways of wild nature. It's the absolute epitome of independence, of it's our oldest native mammal, if you like. It's been there since the Ice Age and so on, long before the rabbit ever came in with the Anglo-Normans. and we, We've had the hare. And because of its sort of independence and because of various associations of fertility that it's had, it's become, if you like, a symbol of of what people are trying to control, what humans are trying to control in respect of nature. So right throughout time, we've had all of these different sort of um, approaches to the hare. Not least on May Day, on May morning, there was a belief that old women, um, the general term we call the kailuk, um, the old women would change into the form of a hare, and in that counterfeit guys, as it were, they would come and they would suckle from the cows and they would take someone's uh, profit away. And people were absolutely paranoid about this. If they ever saw a hare near the cattle, they would hunt it and they would try and kill it and so on. So the ability for someone to transform, for to change from one shape to another is a big part of this tradition.
6: There is a mention, I think, in Caesar's Gallic War that the hare was sacred in Britain. We don't eat the flesh of hares in this part of the world. So, is this a very ancient tradition and is it a tradition which extends outside Ireland? Is it peculiar to Ireland?
7: it's not because there there's all sorts of unusual traditions and i suppose you you bring up the the question of you know caesar and and how old or how far this goes back i'm interested in in food taboos what what animals we don't actually eat I, say, I think there's a big taboo about eating horse in Ireland because there is an association very much with sovereignty and the sovereignty deity and how the deity represents the land and the hare is something quite quite similar to, to that. And the very fact that we don't regularly eat hares and when people did eat the hare funnily enough, they were often very bloody in character and they normally ate the broth of the hare. It was the meat of the rabbit and the broth of the hare. So I'm actually quite interested in the hare being a, a, a taboo food because quite often it's seen to be otherworldly in that sense. But what's really interesting as well, historically, when we go back and we look, this idea that Old women used to turn into hares goes back right through time. The very first independent history of Ireland was done by Geraldus Combrensis. And when Gerald came over with the Anglo Normans, one of the things he mentions in particular was the fact that in Scotland and Wales and in Ireland, women would uh, suckle from the teats of the of the cattle. So this is back to the 12th century. We also have examples from the 16th century from William Camden who talks about this. So this isn't an, an overnight, it's not a, a recent tradition, the whole attribution of the hairs as butter stealers go back right throughout time. But what I'm really interested in is is why and how this came about. Why would we pick the hair? And it pushed me into looking at the natural history of the hair. And when I started exploring all of that sort of material, it became very clear to me as to, uh, you know, why, why the hair became this, this figure. For example, and it's quite strange, Irish people always believed that the hair could change its sex every year, that the male hairs would actually be able to, to bear young. And that was a, that was a strange sort of idea. There's a, an incredible story from Irish folklore which I think is worth recounting. One is that the Irish version of Noah's Ark is quite different. We don't have any giraffes or lions or tigers in the Irish Noah's Ark. But we had all the Irish animals uh, in the in the folkloric uh, version of it. And the last animals to come onto Noah's Ark were the horses, was the mare and the stallion. And Noah was very worried about the stallion coming onto the onto the ark because he knew he was frisky and sure enough, it so happened that when the flood came and they were out in the open water, the stallion put his foot through the, the side of the ark and a big flood of water came in. And Noah was very disappointed with that and he threw the stallion overboard. And all he could do then was to grab the smallest little animal, not quite the smallest, but the one most convenient, was the doe, was the female hare. And he plugged the hole that was there with the female hare and killed her, of course, in the, in the process. So after that, it always happens then that to allow the, 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 the whole race to procreate, the males are supposed to be able to change their, their sex every year and to bear young. But that makes it interesting in itself, because the hair is nearly always considered to be female. The hair is nocturnal. It comes out at nighttime. It looks after it's young. It doesn't have any solid place where it lives. The, the Irish hare actually moves around. It doesn't have a form. It doesn't have a set. It takes any piece of common ground and it sneaks itself in. It It's a solitary animal insofar as it doesn't. It might go out to mate or it might actually uh, forage communally, but it goes back on its own. So no fixed abode, solitary. And then female, out at night, we'll say. And then if I if I keep going on those sort of ideas, there's so many sort of different different attributes that, that 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 the hare has. One of the things is that it's a very fine mother. It has great maternal instincts. And every year when it mates, it will have maybe three or four litters every year. And in doing so maybe four leverets at each time. So it's in constantly in a state of of fertility, of fecundity. One really interesting idea is that potentially the hare is capable of a thing called superfetation, which is the concept of being able to become pregnant while still bearing young. So prior to parturition. Now, there's, I've read lots of papers about this whole concept, and I'm sure you can advise me better, but it's interesting that whether it's true or not, there is the, con- the idea that the hare is a super fertile animal and people will have that sort of notion. In addition to that, the hare is the fastest mammal in Ireland. It can run up to 70 kilometres an hour. And not only that, it can change its direction without any difficulty at all, making it the bane of of the hounds and the greyhounds and all the coursing and so on and so forth. The hare is massively independent in, in that sense. So there is all of these attributes together, all of these incredible natural history attributes define the hair as perhaps a real sort of independent personification, if you like, or materialisation or whatever way you want to put it, of wild nature. And we as, as humans, whether we think it or not, we're in the business of subjugating nature especially when it comes to agriculture. We're in the ones of trying to control everything. So the very fact that the hare represents wild nature and we represent artifice and the human concern of that, that will tell us about the interaction between the two.
6: The wolf is described as the mock. Era, the son of the countryside the homeless one the vagabond kind of thing now the hare you describe is a similar kind of animal it has various forms but it has no home as such and it's also malevolent as indeed the wolf is uh, you, we talk about the hare lip for instance why should this kind of lip be associated with the hare? now do we need an animal that is malevolent is there a vacant can see since the 18th century and the wolves are all exterminated in Ireland, does the hare succeed to that role of the baddie among the animals? Do we have to have such a creature?
7: It's it's so interesting, isn't it? And I, I love that allusion, you know, the mokhthira. Well, I would suggest that the Irish name, of course, for the hare is uh, Gyuria, which comes from Gyar meaning short or small, and fia, meaning either a deer or, or wild. And, of course, I'm reminded of the the beautiful Finiacht tales, the lovely tales of Fionn McCool and the Fianna. And Fionn often follows the, the doe, the deer, into the woodland. And when he gets into the woodland, the deer has transformed into that other shape, into the shape of a woman and so on. And there, of course, is where we get Oisín and Oscar, all of those names for the fawn that comes along. So it's interesting that that almost these animals, if you like, it's in Irish mythology, there tends to be always um, an animal illusion. It's actually very allied to North American um, uh, native traditions as well. Uh, Irish a tradition has zoomorphic representation. Very often, a lot of our deities, even Cu Cullen, will say, is is not just the hound of Cullen, but he behaves as a loyal dog. And then, of course, he goes into uh, becoming um, the, the 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 guard dog that's there. It's a little bit like um, Arthur or Art or um, in in King Arthur being the bear, being being a kind of a noble figure, but who can be vicious at the same time. So I think a lot of our mythology and a lot of our is is based on the symbolism of the animals it's based on the our ability to observe what what was meant and why i'm really interested in this is because i really knew very little about hares until i started to research this paper And I was really fascinated by all of the elements that were there. Not least one I forgot to mention, of course, was the the Irish hare's ability to transform its coat. Now, I know that over the years it does it so less and less so. But I imagine if we go back towards the Ice Age period, we know that it's russety red coloured, Brown coat as it were, which gives it perfect camouflage if you like on on plowed fields and and in brown areas and in heath and heather and so on. but in the winter time when the snows were to come it can transform its full coat into white. I think nowadays it's just on its feet and it's kind of got a piebald kind of impression but the ability to go from one to another from to change from the the old woman into the hair as it were is important. And the other one talking about malevolence <laughs> is is the color red. The hairs, I mean, they're brown, essentially. But depending if you see them in the beautiful golden sunsets, they are absolutely a russet uh, red. And there's always been a, a taboo against particularly red haired people. And I find it very interesting that sailors, when they were going off on the boat or fishermen going off on a boat, if they saw a red haired woman, they turn away. But likewise, if they saw a hare, they would turn away. There's a tradition, for example, that if a groom going on his wedding sees a hare, he's going to die soon would be one of the traditions. But as well, hare, along with both pig and fox, they were words that were not allowed to be spoken on board a boat. And you would instead use the term iron, or you would call them, sometimes you'd call them nine irons. And um, these were a set of charms that were, were used. So the word hare was even taboo. Uh, what I'm really interested in is that the things that were used to kill the hare or to go at the hair are all objects of major human artifice and civilization, if you want to use the term. Fire, iron, salt, guns, dogs, all of these things represent the pinnacle of human artifice and often what we see is nature versus the human, and that's why the hair becomes a symbol in that sort of never ending sort of process.
6: You mentioned turning white. The hares in Scotland, they are as a separate race to ours, of course, the mountain hare. They turn white in winter uh, to match the snow. And of course, in Ireland, presumably, during the Little Ice Age, they would have turned white here. So as you say, transformation change is part of the hare's biology. You also mention femininity. Is there a fear of the feminine being expressed in this in some kind of way? I think of Sheila the Gigs uh, images. And then you go on, uh, there's vampires. And they need a silver bullet to kill them, the sort of thought. And hares, I gather, needed silver bullets in mythology to kill them here. So we're bringing together fertility, malevolence, and the dangers which females present. What would Freud and Jung think of all this? I suppose one of the most
7: significant things to, to think about is the, the most popular folk tale that's told about the hare on May morning and what happens here is that usually the farmer will see um, a hare suckling from uh, its cattle and so on Uh, rather than damaging the cattle he usually will pick up something like a sharp pike, an iron pike and he will jab it down and usually what he does is that he will injure the hare and draw blood from the hare but the hare would normally be gone out and would never be seen again but because it's injured it's a little bit lame and the farmer, he continues after the hare and usually he sees it going into a little house or into a window and when he does and he goes in, the hare isn't there but there's an old woman sitting down and usually in the stories what happens is that he will lift the woman's skirt and he will see uh, the blood that was there and he will know that she was the, uh, the hare stealing his milk. So this very strong tradition is very interesting because it's a rather unusual thing to lift up the woman's skirt and to see if she's bleeding. But a lot of the scholars have suggested that this relates to the subjugation almost of the woman to subjugate her in that way. And as crazy as that sounds, it goes back then to the whole idea that we, our relationship with nature and with the planet, as it were, is a relationship where we are the ones who are trying to control the female cosmic agency, the Mother Earth, if you like, and our ability to do that with our iron or with our salt or with our guns and all of the things we have. That's the kind of symbol that we're talking about here. So this is a very strong element. It's not so much that it's about the female, it's about humans and the planet. And that's seen as a relationship that's there. And it is, I think, a really interesting way of of observing this rather unusual, small folktale, if you like, the folktale of the the hare that steals the milk and is injured by the farmer and so on, and the transformation that takes place. I think we have to, to view it in that context.
6: Now, people in fairly recent times were much more in contact with nature and the animals in the wild than we are now. We've become very alienated from the natural world. But that is a very recent development. So people not so long ago would encounter things like hares a great deal is there any basis for this thing about the hair suckling from the cattle I've never heard of that in the natural history side of the thing I wonder is there any basis for that
7: well, you know, when I'm giving my lectures and so on, I would always try to illustrate them as best I can. And the closest I actually managed to get were some kittens uh, suckling from the uh, from the cattle uh, as, as a photograph. So it, it kind of was enough for me to think that, yes, this could potentially be the case because I suppose hares are mammals and hares lactate and they look after their young very, very well. I know that they hide their young. And they usually leave them not to draw attention to them. And then what happens is that they will come back and they will call them. They will vocalise and call them to them uh, usually two at a time. And you will see them nursing their young. So certainly they would have a I suppose they would have a, a knowledge of, of lactation and of milking and so on. And it's feasible. But of course, I've never I've never seen it. And I, I don't know if anyone else has. Um, but perhaps and one of the things I wrote about in this paper was the fact that we've become less and less and less aware of our natural surroundings. But people in the past would have had a much closer association. Like hares are are particularly adept at staying hidden we see them out in dublin airport of course and we see them in in communal gatherings like that we see them when they're mating when the when the females hairs are pushing the 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 uh, the, the males which are smaller than them away from them and so on but when generally you don't see hares because hares can hide very well and they know they can get away so they don't bolt like a rabbit and when you come across them they stay still you can walk up right up on top of them and then of course they go away so the fact that we don't have perhaps the same awareness or knowledge. I think a lot of the folk tradition that I'm speaking about comes from first-hand knowledge that was coming from when people were far closer to nature than we are today.
6: You mentioned the Easter bunnies. People long ago would not have known, I think, that the ones pushing, uh, fighting, are really the females warding off males. But the obscurity of the hares sex life if you like the fact that you never see it's young because it hides them and visits them once a day sort of thing to lactate for a few minutes and then disappears completely this would seem to resonate with the idea of the lapwings eggs being those of the hare. or does it that's the other great tradition of easter bunnies is the easter egg now that seems to be connected with discovering lapwings eggs out in a field or something like that. Develop that for me a bit, will you?
7: Yeah. So, like, one of the great—I I remember going to going to America in particular. You know, I—I I, I never grew up with a huge sense of the of the Easter bunny uh, and so on. But of course, rabbits and hares are to the popular mind or rather you know they're indistinguishable but I remember um, my first time kind of thinking about this and looking at this and in, in my researches what has now come about is that because the hare won't necessarily go to the same set or the same layer each night and she will go to different little forms uh, around the area, very often she's been known to settle down in a ready made nest um, and that's been the, the cause of when people came across the hare and the hare of course would move on, they would see the eggs that the lapwing had, had laid earlier on. And they would believe, of course, that this was something that the, uh, the hare had laid. So the association between the great fertility, of course, that we get in around March coming into the Easter period, um, and we see all of that. That's how that whole phenomenon became established.
6: The title of your paper includes the term the cosmic hare. What do you mean by that?
7: for me what's really important is the scholarship that has been done in recent years about the what we would call the the, the cosmic Female agency and ways in which that has been manifest through our many uh, deities and you mentioned Sheila and the gigs earlier on. We've mentioned uh, Bridget uh, and so on. I, I I always think that all of the deities that we have, whether it's Eru, Fola, Banva, uh, Maeve, all of the different figures that we have in Irish tradition, all belong to a manifestation of of the female, and to me the hair is essentially female and she is in many ways the um, animal form or the animal symbol of all of those female elements and the the entire sort of concept that we have of the king, as it were, and um, mating with the female, the the marriage between uh, the, the the human artifice and the n- nature as it were, which is what 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 life is all about on this planet, the, the 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 sense of um of respect between those and 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 everyone else, I think we have to be very aware of that. So by applying the term uh, the the cosmic hair, I kind of making. Particular reference to the fact that the the hair is something that we should think about and respect, and maybe we don't treat the hair very well in Ireland. Maybe we have disregard for it in the same way that we have disregard for um our planet and our environment and the way that we, we the way that we treat it with all of our artifice. This is a story which goes back right through time. It's a concern that has been there through our mythology, through our history, through our folklore. So. By giving it that title, I want people to think that this isn't just some ancient kind of story, but this, there's a lesson in this for all of us.
0: Richard Collins there talking to Shane Lahan, and you can read Shane's paper in full on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, Nile Hatch, here's a soundscape that you'll be very familiar with, and you might tell our listeners what you think it is and why you're so familiar with it, if you would. <laughs>
1: Well, Derek, that sounds to me like the Big Apple, the city that never sleeps, New York City, uh, which is a place I I know very well, actually. I used to live in upstate New York Mm -hmm. in in a city called Ithaca in the Finger Lakes region. uh, And it's sort of equidistant between New York City and Toronto. So I used to spend quite a bit of time going to both those cities. I know them very well. And yeah, that's a a very distinctive sound to me. All right.
0: It certainly is. Now, the first question, Isle, is what have big cities like New York, Chicago, San Francisco and others strewn across North America got in common.
1: Well, I think one of the main things that they have, particularly when you compare them to, to cities here in Europe, is they're much more high-rise. They have mm-hmm. skyscrapers all over the place. So if you're on Manhattan Island in, in the heart of New York, it's like being at the bottom of a big canyon. There's this big, tall buildings o- either side of you, full of glass and steel.
0: Steel and glass, glass and steel, and that's what this next story is about. Nile architects can do more to prevent bird deaths. That's what the headline screams. And the next question is, why aren't they? Collisions with glass buildings kill up to 1 billion migratory birds billion per year in the united states an issue that architects will eventually need to address head-on thanks to mounting public interest and a recent slew of bills mandating avian-friendly construction in major cities from new york to san francisco nile hatch tell us more about this story
1: Yes, it, it is a significant problem and I think that the, the, the full extent of it is only recently starting to become understood. There's a lot of research, particularly from Canada, first of all, in, in Toronto especially, where they've been doing research for years now on the, on the impact of these these tall, high-rise, mainly glass, shiny buildings mm-hmm. on migratory birds. Uh, and now it's become realised that it's a big problem throughout the Americas and indeed to an extent here in Europe. A lot of work's been done in the Czech Republic, uh, the, the BirdLife International Partner Organisation in the Czech Republic called the Czech Ornithological Society. They've been really pioneering work on this across Europe not just with buildings but actually with bus shelters they were finding that glass bus shelters were also posing a problem for for birds but the thing is the full extent of the problem here in Ireland and elsewhere in Europe isn't fully known we have absolutely no data on this whatsoever a bird here and there might be killed by hitting a building here in Ireland but you know that's not added up and across the whole country it could could result in millions of birds being killed per year We, we really really don't know in North America it's become a bit clearer because there are in many ways more clearly defined migratory flight paths for lots of birds there a lot of them are breeding in the boreal forests of Canada, and then in the autumn, they're migrating south and heading down towards places like the Caribbean, Central America, South America and they tend to, to be attracted towards larger cities. The reason for that being that cities tend to be very bright, particularly at night when a lot of these small birds are migrating, mm-hmm. and when they're drawn towards the light. It makes it easy for, easier for them to navigate. They're heading towards these bright lights of the cities, but they don't realise there's a building in front of them and they just crash straight into it. So that happens to them at night time. But then for the birds migrating during the day, the main problem is the glass is actually reflecting the sky and the birds don't think there's anything there. They think they can just continue to fly through it. I'm sure many of our listeners have had the, the unfortunate fortunate occurrence of, of a bird smacking into their kitchen window or their living room window and either being killed or being badly hurt and people don't know what to do in those cases people think it's sometimes because the bird was trying to get into the house or perhaps because it was trying to just fly straight through in fact they have no interest in doing that at all. Generally, what has happened is the bird saw a reflection of the sky or maybe a tree in the window and just thought it could continue flying. It happens particularly to younger birds who are less uh, used to migrating. Of course, the first time they've migrated if they've just been hatched out this past summer. And so they're more naive than their parents would be. They haven't really learned the hazards of the world and they end up plowing straight into the glass. So you can be sure globally billions and billions of birds are dying in this way. And what the research for the United States is showing is that these window collisions and glass collisions, especially with tall skyscraper buildings, uh, they're the, the second leading cause of deaths in birds now after the problems of feral cats. So it's very serious.
0: But they're talking now in the States about collision proofing entire cities along. And you mentioned migration there, migratory paths. And it sounds like a daunting task. Is this possible? Can you retrofit all of these buildings, take out all the glass in order to avoid these collisions? What can you do?
1: Well, th- there are a lot of things that can be done and they've been making some remarkable um, discoveries in terms of how to, to lessen this damage. But the problem is the birds not seeing the glass um, is why they crash into it. If they can see it in time, they will avoid those uh, those buildings and that glass. So the thing you need to do is to make sure that there are visible markings on the glass then make sure that the birds can avoid them in time. So they've found that even something as simple as just putting tiny, virtually invisible little dots on these on the glass, on the exterior surface of the glass, mm-hmm. uh, will reduce the bird collisions by a, a whopping Ninety percent. Um, so you'd be taking—if that happened all across North America—you'd be taking down the the number of, of birds killed from one billion to a hundred million, which is still. A terribly high number but it's a vast improvement uh, and of course there's a cost involved in that and I think that it's something that in, in several cities in North America including in Toronto this is being sort of codified within building regulations buildings over a certain height have to have bird-friendly glass so it's obviously much easier to do it when a building is being constructed uh, rather than when for retrofitting buildings but that, that can be done and one of the things that my colleagues in the Czech Republic have found out too is that the the markings don't necessarily have to be visible to humans As so long as they're visible to birds that's all that matters so so they found that having a series of very thin stripes in the glass with a sort of ultraviolet paint or dye will stop the birds from colliding with them. Ultraviolet light is invisible to the human eye, but birds eyes can see it. So you can have all these stripes on the glass that don't interfere with our, our enjoyment of the window or use of the window. We, we can't even perceive uh, this dye or this paint on the glass, but the birds can. And so long as you have a gap of just just a, a few centimetres between the stripes, they have to be quite close together, so wider than the distance that a bird could squeeze through or think it could squeeze through. That will prevent the vast majority of collisions so it just takes the, it takes the I suppose the, the political and civic will to, to, to want to little do that. A bit of imagination.
0: Anyway some cities, as we said, are introducing new legislation to stop this mass killing of migratory birds Nile, tell us a little bit more about it if you would.
1: That, that's right. Yes, it's, it's good to see this happening. And it's not being done at a federal level across the US. It's been done on a city by city basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the leaders in this, places like Chicago, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and of course, New York City, uh, all major cities with very, very tall buildings in them. Uh, they actually have very comprehensive bird collision proofing legislation in place for the last uh, two or three years at this stage. Um, they're requiring bird friendly materials to be installed on 90% of the facades up to a height of 75 feet and up to 12 feet above green roofs which are obviously going to attract in more wildlife uh, than, than other areas would so there'll be more birds around those areas uh, now of course there are costs involved in that but as we said there are actually huge economic benefits to doing that work too so a lot of the cities are realising that by investing in preventing bird collisions there are actually going to be economic benefits uh, for, for, for the communities down the line so it's well worth doing
0: Niall, no, thank you very much indeed. My thanks also to Anne and Richard Collins and Terry Flanagan. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarlith Holland and our researcher is John Riley Don't forget, you can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Until the next time, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney.
5: Email mooney at rte.ie.